This is a podcast by Wellhouse Church, where we talk about what it's like to be a Christian Monday through Saturday, to live as a person of faith and a culture against faith. What's going on, man? Not a lot. Not a lot. It's wet. It's cold. It's nasty. Yeah, it is. Yep. So, yeah, it is. Not a lot. It's been wet and cold all day. Yep. Um, we're actually filming the, or recording this. Um, I'm used to saying filming. Because typically there's a camera set up. Right, but we, we don't have a camera if we, you're We don't have listening. a camera today. Yeah. Um, but um, we're recording this the the Sunday before this is supposed to go out. And so if you live in the Mont Bellevue, Baytown, Houston area, crap, all over Southeast Texas right now. Weather is not good. It is not good. Um, it's wet and cold. and The kind of weather nobody wants to be in. Although up north near College Station, I'm a little bit jealous because it's like snowing and stuff, man. Oh, I'm like, not. I hate the snow. I love the snow. No, I hate the snow. I love because it. it means it's like a a dry cold, not like a wet cold, right? Not always. Lots of times when it snows down here, the humidity level's so high because we're right on the water. Mm. It's still a wet cold. Yeah, but like that far north up away. there in yeah. College Station, probably not. But yeah. Where we are, yeah. Like, I know Baylor posted something, Truett posted something, that they got, like, three inches of snow. That's incredible. And it's like, yeah, that looks pretty, but, like, I got zero desire to be that cold. Yeah. Well, I'm not, I'm cool with the cold. Um, no, like, right now I'm we're cool here, and um, I've got my shoes off, and my toes are a bit cold, and I'm like, yeah, no, I don't like this. It's different, though. It gets cold in here, like, really cold. Yeah. Um Either way, but yep. So I'm not jealous about the snow. <laughs> I got zero <laughs> desire to be around snow. <laughs> I don't like it. Yeah, we had one white Christmas growing up. It wasn't like really a white Christmas. It just snowed Christmas morning. Well, we we had. I can remember at least three white Christmases. Mm-hmm. We lived in a little house in Hancomer. Uh-huh. There was one where you were sick. Yeah. And I got to go outside, and I brought you in a bowl of snow. Right. That was the first time you'd ever been around snow. Yeah. There were, and then there were two back-to-back years when I was in high school. It snowed on Christmas. Mm-hmm. Two I back-to-back years. This. Yep. Or maybe skip a year, in between. But there were two of my high school years where it snowed on Christmas. I don't remember that. But I do remember it snowing in like three or four inches, like stuck in Anawak. Um, but I don't think that was on Christmas. Um, it was around Christmas time. Maybe so. Yeah. Maybe I'm getting that mixed up. But yeah. there were definitely at least two Christmas mornings where it snowed. One of them was in the little house in Handcomer. Right, that I remember. Because I remember it was the year after we got a trampoline. Yeah. And I went. there was snow all over the trampoline. I went and jumped on the trampoline. Yeah. With snow all over it. And I remember looking out the window at you. Like, yep. Being all sad because I didn't feel good. And yep. Didn't and mom wouldn't let you go outside because you'd get more Well, sick. she was going to let me. But oh. I didn't want to because I didn't feel good. Got you. Got you. Um, but, so, okay. I don't know if you're excited to talk about this, but I'm excited to hear you talk about it. Yeah, I, I'm i indifferent. Um, I think a lot of it is not times in my life that I want to relive because um, they were some pretty dark times for me. But um, 
I do think it's a word and a message that people want to hear and need to hear. Yeah. So, um, I think it was last week that my deconstruction episode came out. Yes. And then the week, not the week before that, but whenever, like right before content stopped coming out. Yeah. was Adams. Yeah. Adams. Yep. Um, so now we're about to hear Cullen's. Yeah. So my deconstruction story probably began while I was on staff at a church and I was the youth pastor, student pastor. And we talk about it a lot. We grew up in fundamentalism and our parents weren't fundamentalists, but they were devout followers of God. And for whatever reason, it always seemed like God sent us places in fundamentalism within fundamentalism. And probably because it's the tradition that our dad grew up in and our mom, they both grew up in more fundamentalist expressions. And so it was probably a place of comfort, even though they had kind of gone away from that, it was still kind of the, it was the language that they knew. It, it was almost like a, uh, so from the, the sacred, Enne- not the sacred Enneagram, the sacred pathways, right? It's almost like the, the, the feeling, the traditionalist, the traditionalist is just like, this is what I know. Yeah. Yeah. Very possible. Um, and I do think, you know, like there was no question that like, I don't think they ever would have went to a Catholic church, right. but like, excuse me. I think they, potentially could have excuse me tried a methodist church or something and you know oh. been been very happy in in that but i do, i think it, they they remember growing up baptists and specifically more conservative baptist expressions and so that's where they took us yeah at least for a part of the time in their history they weren't yeah they weren't exclusively yeah, so baptist. mom didn't grow up exclusively baptist and neither did dad but yeah. uh by the time we started going to church with them we went pretty exclusively baptist mm-hmm. um and i so growing up in that um i tell people all the time on your deconstruction journey the first thing you want to do is you want to find somebody to blame when, when whatever happens in your life that drives you to deconstruction, um, you want somebody to blame. You, you want to blame whoever it is that handed you your faith or you want to blame you know, whoever gave you the construct you have. But you can't ever fault somebody for doing what they know. Like That's, that's my journey and experience. You can't fault someone for doing what, what they know. Um, Cause I would imagine they're, they're probably doing it better than how it was given to them. Yeah. They probably critiqued it and made it better and they're doing the best that they can with what they have. And that was, that's the story with our parents. But I was 15 when I got my call to the ministry and I started preaching everywhere that would give me a pulpit like at 15. Um, and I look back on some of those sermons and I'm just grateful that there were churches that had enough grace to sit through some of that terrible preaching. Um, cause it wasn't good. I remember one time it's about 15 or 16 and I preached for an hour and 10 minutes in a church that had no, no music. Um, 
There were some, yeah, like, I'm glad there's grace because <laughs> I look back on some of those and go, man, those churches were mighty kind. So I, I do want to go ahead and say just like a word of encouragement. I don't remember exactly what the sermon was, but I remember the first sermon that you preached um, thinking how amazing it was. Yeah, so you're not the only person to say that. Um, I will say for whatever reason, right, wrong, or indifferent, it's just the way God created me. Um, people have told me several times throughout my life that, that, like, when I step up to preach, like, there's just something different about it. And I don't say this pridefully or anything like that. I I just think that I'm one of the few people in the world that, lives, sleeps, eats, and breathes preaching and communication of gospel ideas and themes. Um, And I think about preaching very differently. I do things very differently. Um, And I think that's put me in that, that position. Um, And so it would, in the truest sense of the word, it, it feels a lot of times like, um, I was put here to do one thing and it's preach. Um, so I started preaching in a lot of different places and, uh, crossing traditions and crossing denominational lines and, and meeting people. And, and then something crazy happened. I, I had a charismatic moment. And that's where I really went, wait, things are not always as they seem. We grew up Baptist and, you know, charismatic expressions and the supernatural weren't really a part of what we, what we did and how we lived. And then I had this charismatic moment and I was like, wait, something, I don't have a space for this to fit. And so I tried to just add it on. Like it was just a new addition to my house that I was building. And that worked for a while. But it wasn't too long after that that I realized that there was some there was a belief that so I told this story today, and I'll tell it again, but uh, I remember my first day showing up at True Seminary, four-year university for Christian studies. Um, I'd done Greek, and I'd done all my intro Bible classes, intro theology class. Like, I'd done all those. This is my first true, like, class in my major. That's not true. I'd taken a class on John. Sorry, I forgot. I'd taken a class on John that was in my major. But this was like my first real class at my new seminary. Um, And it was a class on Revelation. And we grew up, like I said, we grew up in fundamentalism. And so the professor walked in. It's my first class at a new school, new university. I don't know anyone. There's like maybe 20 people in this class. And the professor walks right in and doesn't introduce himself, doesn't do anything. He just asks this question. 
there's a class on Revelation, the book of Revelation. And he walks in and he says, how many of you believe in a rapture? And my hand shot up <laughs> like quickly. I was like, yep, of course. I know this one. Yep, I do. Got it. And, you know, I'm new, so I'm not really looking around at anybody else. I'm just looking at the professor. And he sits there for a second and is looking around the classroom. And I just, I think I just happened to be sitting in a seat where he panned the room from the other way. And I was sitting against the wall on, on one side of the room, the side closest to the door. And when we met eyes, he kind of stopped and looked at me for a second. And I turned and looked and I was the only person in the room raising my hand. I bet that hand came down kind of slow. Uh, well, I was in shock. Yeah. I didn't know what to do. Um, I was at a Baptist university and here we were with a belief that I thought was essential. I thought believing in a rapture was required to be a Christian. And now I'm in this room that's people training to be pastors and I'm the only one that believes in a rapture. The heck is going on, man? That really started to rock my world. Because growing up in church, you get an idea and you begin to learn and you know, and then you learn what you don't know and you go, man, wait, um, I like that, but I don't know how it fits in what I've already built. Yeah. So let me build another house or let me build a new room, an extension. Let me add on and hope that it still functions. Yeah. What well, came to a place where it no longer functioned for me because I began to hear and I began to read about this God of grace and like, not a little bit of grace, but like extravagant grace. The grace that can forgive and restore prostitutes. The grace that can forgive and restore murderers. Um, the grace that can restore and forgive the people that I think are just so heinous. And then, yet I would struggle because I would see things like, like Paul writing in First Timothy or First Corinthians that this is my crude paraphrase, not interpretation, but women shut up, don't talk in church. Um. Or see, you know, God in the Old Testament, quote unquote, tell the the Israelites to go kill the Canaanites, men, women, and children. Um, and I remember hearing and reading about this God that I'm supposed to believe is all powerful, 
and holy. And how can a God that's holy and all-powerful allow the Holocaust? How can a God that's holy and all-powerful command that women and children be killed? Um, And livestock, everything. Yeah, just literally kill all of it. Um, And for me, they weren't... It wasn't a thread that I was afraid to pull. Like, those weren't questions that I was afraid of. I knew there had to be an answer because, like, I'd at least understood by this point that there were a ton of people that had expressions that were different than me, but still I could firmly and confidently call them Christian. And so I knew that there was an answer, but like there were just some things that I had built and more specifically me and for my own expression and where I was, I think I'd built my foundation upon some things that didn't need to be foundational because when I got outside of our tradition in that little bubble, some people popped that foundation really quickly. Um, For instance, I remember growing up and being taught to believe inerrancy, that there are zero errors in the Bible. And it could have been a faulty explanation of what inerrancy was by some of the people that were trying to explain it to me. But inerrancy, the true definition is the idea that in the original autographs, so the writing that Paul is having penned for himself, there are zero errors. Yeah. Okay? And so for me... Like, I just remember hearing that, that that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, that it has zero errors in it. Well, the academic definition is not that. The academic definition is that the original autographs have zero errors. The Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, which is where everybody gets that idea from, is about the autographs, the original manuscript. We don't have any of those. Yeah, so why does it matter? Yeah, so for me, cool, that doesn't matter because we don't have those. Yeah. The ones that we have, I see problems in. Yeah. And they're not big problems. Not all the time. Even um, most of the time. I'm confident saying most of the time, but like the big, the glaring one is the women issue. Yeah. We've got two or three places that we can point to where Paul says, hey, women, be quiet. You're not allowed to talk. I don't give you permission to speak or have authority over man. But then we got these other places where Paul's like, in Christ, neither male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. Got Priscilla and Aquila. Priscilla being the woman, them both being called apostles. Them taking Apollos aside and correcting and teaching him. Uh, we got Phoebe recorded, you know, being the the 
sender of and performer of the letter to the Romans. Like we have Hulda and all these prophetesses of the Old Testament. We we have Mary sitting at Jesus's feet. We have women funding Jesus's ministry. Like we see God do some amazing things through women. I mean, heck, women are the first preachers of the resurrection. Yeah. Um, and maybe, maybe you're not comfortable calling it an error, but you got to call it something. It's not, the two things don't compute at face value. Yeah. And so for me, as I tried to build and build and build on all of these, I just came to a place where I needed, I needed a different, I needed a different construction. I'd built my house on a rock foundation, but I built it out of straw and I'd added on and added on and the big bad wolf could come in and blow it down because maybe the foundation was good, but like the bones weren't. Yeah. And I needed something new. For me, this is why I feel, this is why I'm so passionate about deconstruction. Um, because when I began to ask those questions, I felt ostracized. It took two or three questions um, for it seemed like everyone that I ever thought was close to me in the realm of faith to put me at arm's length and really almost without even trying to understand where I was coming from, condemn the path that I was headed down. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't know if we've ever talked about this before or not. Um, if we have, I don't remember. Um, I totally feel like I was one of those people. Um, yeah, you mentioned it, uh, in your deconstruction episode, I think that I don't know how, but I mentioned something, about that, just like that you had people around to help you through that Mm -hmm. and how vital that was. Yeah. Well, um, then I'm sure I already apologized. Yeah, you did. I appreciate that. I'm going to apologize again. I'm so sorry. Yeah, no, it it happens. And look, when you're, when you're the first person in your circle to do it, it makes sense. Um, well, because the ideas just seem so foreign. Um, yeah. Scary. Yeah. They're unknown. Yeah. And you don't know what's going to happen if you pull that thread. Yeah. Right? Like, it could come out very easily or could unravel the entire piece of piece of cloth. Yeah. Um, Which, from, from my episode, I've pulled that thread multiple times and the entire shirt unraveled multiple times. Yeah. Um, well, not exactly, because like we said, you never got to the point where you doubted God. The no, I guess that's true. Yeah, um, I got to the point where I was like ready to leave faith. Yeah. Um, because when I felt like I needed the community of the believers, they weren't there for me. Like they, they weren't there for me to be a sounding board. I had one and his name was Ben Blackwell. Um, it was just one of those crazy things. He had done his PhD in Europe in England and 
he had a different understanding and expression of faith that, and I think I can confidently say, and Ben would also confidently say, I think I've landed maybe in a more liberal position than he would have been or than he is. Um, but even still, he was, um, I wouldn't be a Christian today without Ben Blackwell. Like, I really think I would have left the faith if not for him. Um, because I was on staff at a church, and I, as I began to have these questions, you know, when you when you start to have these questions, and specifically as they begin to revolve around grace and your understanding of God, fundamentalism has a very rigid view of God and understanding of faith and expression of faith. And it just was no longer what I was seeing in the text. Now, there were some pieces of God that I couldn't reconcile yet, like the issue of, um, you know, the problem of evil, yeah. uh, genocide, those kinds of, like, I still couldn't, I couldn't wrestle with those. But like I was no longer at a place where I could I was no longer at a place where I could discriminate against people based on their sin. Like I'd come to a place where I realized what I now talk about is the sin hierarchy. It had to go. Um and that showed up in a way. You also got to understand, I was 21 years old, first full-time associate staff role in a very conservative, traditional Baptist church, um, and I put a kid on my leadership team that was openly gay. Now, I say that in the truest sense of the word, he was not acting in homosexual behavior at that time. No. But he was self-identified as gay. No. Same-sex attraction. So I put him on my student leadership team. I still consider him to be a Christian. Like Absolutely. I, I, I have no qualms about that. That was still a good decision. And I think as I began to have these questions in these other areas, my faith began to be much more about grace than about doctrine. Mm -hmm. And that scared a lot of people. And so not only was I not given space to have the conversations needed to question and doubt and wrestle through it, with the people that I thought should have been there for me. I also began to be questioned about my methods of how I was being a pastor. Um, and we were growing. We were seeing kids be restored by the gospel of Jesus. Um, I was seeing ministry work done and I was seeing Jesus happen in this new expression. But because of the type of people that I was reaching and the role that I was giving to young women, I was being chastised. I 
um, was being rebuked. Um, and I was seeing some people of God that I considered to be very devout people of God do some things in reference to me and my wife that I, I just couldn't believe that a person of God would do that. And that spiraled for me to a place where I just came to a place where I resigned shortly after all of that from the church and I went to work in the secular world and I came to a place where I was like, yeah, I, I'm an Enneagram three, so I could masquerade it pretty well and pretend and perform for people. Like I knew all the right things to say, but in my heart I was like, I don't think God exists. Um, but I could only stay there for so long because faith was so central to who I was. And I knew that just because the faith that I'd been given no longer worked for me, like I knew there had to be a way to make it work and I couldn't give up on it because I'd been trained. I knew, I knew how to find the answer. And so I went searching and I went on the deconstruction journey all by myself. Um, That's a dangerous road to walk. Yeah, I had been there and I think Ben kept me grounded, but Ben had also introduced me to the essentials of faith. Right. And like I knew, I knew that the Nicene Creed was non-negotiable but also all the questions that I had, the Nicene Creed doesn't talk about. Yeah. And so I knew that there was a way to do it. And Ben Ben helped me. Ben recommended some different theologians to me and, and things, some different paths to pursue. Um, and on this journey, we traveled to a lot of different churches while we were trying to heal. And... We got met with quite a bit of resistance. I was young. Um, I was a bit naive about what church would be like if I wasn't on staff. Um, and so we got chastised not by name, but by context from the pulpit of more than one church while we were attending there from the pastors, uh, from the staff and all that will do for you. If you, if you can't figure it out is, uh, make you take more steps back in your deconstruction journey. But I was determined. I like, it just wasn't something that I could give up on. By this point, I hated working in the secular world, fell into some very deep depression um, but like I also I couldn't deny the postmodern in me like I couldn't deny the spiritual experiences that I'd had and so I came to a place theologically after many many years of searching that I feel like is a healthy place for me it's not a healthy place for everyone 
And even now to this day, um, I was talking to an old friend and I still talk to a lot of those people that weren't there for me when I felt like I needed them in deconstruction. Um, but we're not as close as we used to be. Um, but I was talking to one of them and I said, Hey, just in passing, uh, we were talking about theology and I said, Hey, what do you think about this category of people theologically? Like people that self identify in this vein of theological expression. Um, and I'm not going to, this is not uh pints and perspectives. So I don't expect people to know deep level theology. So I'm not going to tell you what it is, but I said, what do you think, what do you think about these people? And it's, it's the camp that I landed in. Yeah. Like it's the one that I went, okay, like this, this works for me as of right now. And he was like, oh yeah, they're heretics. Yeah. It's like, oh, okay. So even some of my old friends that when I was going through deconstruction, they ostracized me and they weren't there for me now would blatantly say I'm not a Christian. Um, and so all that to say, yeah, my story is pretty rare that I got hit both from, I don't understand the theological system side and it no longer works as well as like the community of faith wasn't there for me when I needed them. And because of that, I was like very tempted to leave faith yeah, uh, and tried multiple times to leave faith. Um, but God wouldn't let you leave. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, I believe that um, even when I would try vehemently to leave, um, I even pursued, I did all the steps, took the LSAT, did everything I needed to do to get into law school. Like I was, I was headed out. I did not want to be a pastor. I didn't want to be a Christian. I didn't want to do anything um, because it, it couldn't compute for me how, like how I was treated and the faith that I was given. Like I just saw, like I said, the big bad wolf blew it down. The only problem was the big bad wolf was people who said they were Christians Um, Mm. and I needed, I needed, I was the rarity that I got hit from both sides of the deconstruction pendulum that if you've got like the theological system on one side and the way the people of God act on the other and the pendulum swings somewhere in between, um, mine came crashing down on both sides, probably because of the unique position I was in as a pastor and being on staff and specifically as a junior, a staff pastor. But I will tell you, like for me, where I've landed, I feel like my faith is stronger than it's been maybe ever. Um, I can definitely agree with that for you. Absolutely. When I think Adam on his deconstruction episode, and I didn't really understand what he was saying until afterwards when I processed it, but he says that he made friends with the doubt and the darkness. Mm. Um, I 
I didn't make friends with the darkness. But I think I made friends with the doubt. Now, the camp where I landed, um, it's much easier to deal with doubt in that camp because just the theological system that it falls in, which is so not important for, we'll talk about it on a Pints and Perspectives episode, but it's so not important for right now. Um, but this is why Wellhouse and, and deconstruction specifically are so important for me. It's because I learned firsthand that the church didn't have a space for people to have those questions. The church didn't have a space for people to have those doubts. And I say it all the time, and I don't mean to offend anybody when I say it, but if your God is afraid of your doubts, your God is whack, bro. Like if your God is so small that he's afraid of your doubts, your God is whack. Um, and it took me a long time to come to those terms. And for me, I probably, I, I definitely would have benefited had I had people there to help me through deconstruction. Because that's the other thing. When you're going through deconstruction, you don't really need an answer. You need somebody to listen understand and identify and I didn't really have that um I had someone there who could keep me within the boundaries because you know I very could have very easily could have ended in like a Paul Tillich kind of like uber liberal like God might be real he's like the key word for a Tillich belief is that God is the ground of being and so God's like the author of life, but like that's the extent of God. And like Jesus is not really like Jesus wasn't the son of God, like not really a real person. Uh, definitely not Messiah. Like Jesus didn't save. He wasn't supernatural. Like he didn't do miracles. Um, and that like Paul Tillich masquerades as a Christian. Um, I, I don't know that I can confidently call him a Christian. Now that's not going to say that Paul Tillich's not saved. Right. Right? I want to make that distinction. I'm not the judge of if someone is saved. The Nicene Creed has given us a way to judge if someone is a Orthodox Christian, but I don't know about someone's salvation, their relationship with Jesus. Yeah. All I can tell you is that what Paul Tillich was putting out doesn't line up with Orthodox Christianity in my book. And so, like, I could have easily ended up somewhere like that. I was educated enough that I understood what Paul was saying, kind of. I think as best as anyone can understand what Paul is saying. Um, uh, as in the Apostle Paul is what you're talking no, about? No, 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 Paul Tillich. Okay. He's a philosopher, like, deeply, deeply academic. Uh, he was a professor at um, Harvard. Mm -hmm. So, like, just stupid smart. Yeah, yeah, um, kind of smart that you almost envy sometimes yeah at times um yeah. i don't really like where he landed but yeah, yeah. I, I think i could have easily ended up somewhere like there but i had someone like ben who 
Uh, I like to think about Ben in terms of a bowling alley during my deconstruction. Mm. Um, he was your guards. He was my bumpers. Oh. He didn't. He didn't give me direction on where the ball was going. If I'm the ball, right? He didn't change my course of direction and make me go in an exact straight line to get a strike. He just kept me from going out of bounds where I'd end up in the black hole with nothing to show for it. So when we first started um, Pines and Perspectives, we talked yep. about the the lake metaphor. Um, remember when we talked about the lake is yep. the essentials of faith. Anything that happens inside the lake is fair game. And anything outside is not. Yep. He just kept you in the lake. He kept me in the lake. Um, there were times that I felt like I was on the beach with only my feet touching the water. Um, but yeah, Ben kept me in the lake. Ben kept me in the boundaries. Um, and that's what I needed. I didn't need anyone to try to fix the answers. Like I didn't need anyone to try to give me the answer to the question because odds are I'd already heard their answer and I was finding it insufficient. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, they weren't working. And so for me, this is why deconstruction is so important because I've I've made it. I've done that hard work. It was probably three or four years for me of like hard, hard questioning everything and wrestling with. Now I was wrestling with some depression during that time. If you know anything about mental illness um, comes with a lack of motivation. And so there were lots of times I didn't have the motivation, energy or care to try to do it. Um, So it was a long journey for me. I know there are other people like Adam. I don't think his deconstruction journey took quite that long. Now he says he's still in it. And I think we're always deconstructing and reconstructing, but we do the bulk of it in one or two places in our lives. Um, I think it's a little bit different maybe in your adolescence, like your story, because you're like a sponge. You're taking everything in and you're, you're trying to piece it together. Excuse me. Um, but I say all that to say like, if you've listened to 40-something minutes of this, here's what I want you to know. Even pastors have doubts. Mm-hmm. Like, we're human, too. And I'll be the first one to tell you, like, we have as many, if not more, faults than you. Um, and I will also say... It's okay to doubt. It's okay to question. It's okay to be critical. Um, But do not do it alone. I think um, it's only by God's grace that I made it out of that in the way that I did. Um, Because especially, like, I mean, just think about anything, right? When the pendulum swings, it swings to the other end. We grew up in arguably the most conservative expression of faith that you could have. 
And so the only place for the pendulum to swing was all the way to the other way to a Paul Tillich. I could have easily ended up there and I don't know where I'd be today if I'd ended up there. Um, I wouldn't be here. Paul Tillich openly had an open marriage because like it wasn't like faith no longer mattered when it gets that liberal. Yeah. There's no ethic involved. It's, it's a, it's an academic cognitive exercise that has no bearing on how I live my life. Um, and so that's why I say if, if like I'm pro deconstruction, um, it, it gave me a faith and a relationship with God that I don't know that I would have had without it. Please do not do it alone. Like come to us, let us get you in a deconstruction support group where you can have a capacity to ask those questions and to wrestle with those hard things. Um, we're not afraid of your doubt. God's not afraid of your doubt. And I promise you, if you deconstruct your house, there are still pieces that you can reuse. Yeah. But it, it's just going to look a little bit different. Um, yeah. Uh, reach out to us on social media. Reach out to us in an email. Both of our emails are on on our website. Um, also, if you just want to send an email to the general wellhouse email, that's mywellhouse.church at uh, gmail.com. Um, if you need to rewind it to write it down, please do. Um, please reach out to us. Don't, don't do this alone. It, it's hard to do it alone. I was lucky enough to have Cullen. Um, Cullen was lucky enough to have Ben. Um, and Adam, who was on here, he he went through it later than most of his friends. So he had me, he had Ben, he had our friend Josh. He Ben, had, I mean, Adam had a lot of people around him, ton of people at Elijah Rising. Like, I promise you this journey will be much more fruitful for you with people around you who care about you and who've been there. Yeah. Um, I think I've done this subconsciously um, because I did kind of push you away when you were going through deconstruction. Yeah. And so I think I've done this subconsciously, but um, lately I feel like I have been making it like a, a personal mission to help people through deconstruction. I'm yeah. talking to two people right now who are going through it. Yeah. I frequently find myself talking to people that are going through it and trying to help them. And I think it, you know, I've said it three or four times now, but it was so formative for me. And while it was several years of really, really hard work, yeah. I don't know. I, I wouldn't change it. I'm very happy with where I've landed. And like, I have a vibrant and wholesome and life-giving faith that I feel like I was missing for a lot of years. Like, to end it, as we were talking about yesterday on A Closer Look, I feel like my good news is now good news.